Love Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clutch and the Bright Not Broken show. We are so excited tonight to have back one of our favorite authors and a dear friend of ours and mentor, Dr. Temple Grandin. And before we get started this evening, I just need to read a couple of things. We want to be sure to thank two of our wonderful sponsors here at the Coffee Clutch. And uh, one of them is called Mayor Johnson. It's your special education super source, the makers of Boardmaker, and they've recently released released an e-catalog featuring hundreds of great products, including several significantly reduced in price. Make sure to visit them at MayorJohnson.com. That's M-A-Y-E-R-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. And the second one is YouDiscovering.org, and that is How Can You Help Your Child Who Has Just Been Diagnosed with Autism? The online training course, Discovering Behavioral Intervention, is the answer. Real parents take you through applied behavior analysis and attend step-by-step modules. So you can learn more about that at you, the letter U, discovering.org. And now on to our exciting interview tonight. Rebecca and I are both here with Dr. Temple Grandin, and we're excited to welcome back um, one of our own collaborators. That's exactly who she is. She's a professor, a prolific author, and one of the most accomplished and renowned adults with autism in the world, Dr. Temple Grandin. Temple has a brand new book out that you won't want to miss, and that's the subject of our interview tonight. It's called The Autistic Brain. Anyone who's interested in autism, gifted, and especially twice exceptional will want to hear all about this exciting new work. This book weaves through her own experience with remarkable new discoveries. She introduces neuroimaging advances and genetic research um, and the link to science and behavior, even sharing her own brain scan that she's going to talk about tonight and show us which anomalies might explain common symptoms. Exploring innovative theories um, of what causes autism and how we can diagnose and best treat it. Temple also highlights long-ignored sensory problems. Very big topic, and we can't wait to talk about that tonight. And also the transformative uh, effects that we can have by treating autism symptom by symptom rather than with an umbrella diagnosis. This is significant Mm -hmm. and most exciting, the part that we share so, so boldly with Temple is 
that she argues raising and educating kids on the spectrum isn't just a matter of focusing on their weakness. In the science that reveals their long-overlooked strengths, she will show us new ways to foster their unique contributions. Temple, welcome to the Bright Not Broken show on the Coffee Clatch. It's wonderful to be here. We are so glad to have you back. And Rebecca, you're in? I am. So good to have you here tonight as well. Hi, Temple. Hi. As we get started about this book, Temple, and as I just mentioned to you a few minutes ago, I had a chance to read a little bit today. I'm really excited about this book. I think it's just a phenomenal work. It looks like you've really put a lot into this. Oh, Richard Panic and I put a lot of work into uh, writing The Autistic Brain. Yeah. And we, what I'd like you to do is tell us what led you to write this book and why you think it's important that we view autism in scientific terms as much as we can. Can you talk about that? Well, one of the problems is autism is a very big spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum, you've got uh, somebody that's fully verbal and could do a high-level job. And at the other end of the spectrum, uh, somebody is probably not going to be able to do that. And I've always been a big believer in developing strengths. And one of the major, most important chapters in the in my book, The Autistic Brain, is looking at the different kinds of specialized thinking. People on the autism spectrum tend to be good at one thing and bad at something else. Like, I'm extremely good at, at visual thinking. When I design things, I can see them in my mind, I, you know, in photorealistic pictures. I had a lot of trouble with algebra. That was just really difficult for me. In fact, I couldn't even do it. And then another kind of mind, the more mathematical mind, thinking patterns. And I had kind of discovered these two ways of thinking, just talking to a lot of people at meetings. And then while researching the, uh, the Autistic Brain book, I... Um, found research that actually shows that there are actually two different kinds of visual thinking. There's the photorealistic visual thinking like me, and the kind of jobs people like me be good at are things like industrial designer, animation, and graphics. And the other kind of mind is more the mathematics mind, the engineering mind, and the computer programming mind. There's two types of visual spatial thinking. Wonderful. And tell us, Temple, the the book is divided into two sections. And the first section, the um, well, the two sections are, if I'm correct, the autistic brain and rethinking the autistic brain. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And if we start with the autistic brain, the first section of the book, can you share some of the highlights from this section, the advancements that have been in neuroimaging and genetics and that have helped us better understand autism, and talk about your own neuroimaging? Well, I have had a chance to uh, get neuroimaged uh, starting all the way back in the late 80s on the very first MRI machines. And as, some different, as different technologies have come along, I, um, I've well, I've had a chance to, opportunity to try them. Now, the most exciting neuroimaging technique was developed by Walter Snyder at the University of Pittsburgh. And this is what's called high-definition uh, diffusion tensor imaging. And this can track the individual cable bundles of white matter circuits that connect up different parts of the brain. You might kind of like think of the brain as sort of a circular office building, and out in the perimeter is the gray matter with the specialized departments, and then the whole inner part where the courtyard of the office building normally would be is cable bundles that connect up the different parts of the brain. And previous types of imaging could not, you know, could not uh, di differentiate the actual cable bundles. And my brain was imaged, and those pictures are in the autistic brain book. And it explains my problem with getting my speech out. There's a circuit in the brain. It's a big bundle of fibers for speak what you see. 
and my circuit had greatly reduced uh, bandwidth in terms of uh, for getting speech out. It also uh, branched all over other parts of the brain that also may explain you know, some of my visual thinking. There's a really spectacular scan that's in USA Today uh, that came out just a few days ago. But the thing is, these kinds of scanning technologies can can show where there may be strengths. They can also show where there's deficits. Um, mm-hmm. I found out that my left parietal area, and this was done with much more conventional imaging, was done at the University of Utah by Jason Cooperada, that my left parietal area was basically full of cerebral spinal fluid, and that might explain my problems with math and sequencing and remembering long strings of verbal information. And then my fear center, the amygdala, was three times larger than normal. Wow. And that may have explained my mm-hmm. constant panic attacks and anxiety, which are now controlled with a very low dose of antidepressant medication. That is just that's fascinating. Becky, were you going to add to that? Well, and what I wanted to uh, question, too, and I think you, you bring it up by looking at all the different parts of the imaging and the strengths and the weaknesses, the importance of... Um, not taking a blanket approach to therapy, but more targeting therapies to areas of strength and areas where interventions might be needed. And that's what especially that? when kids get older. When kids are little, when kids are like two and three years old, you've got a child that's not talking. You pretty much do the same therapy because you've got to get the language, try to get language going, lots of turn-taking, uh, ABA type of things. But then as the kids get a little older, and I was maybe around third or fourth grade when my ability in art really started to show up, or maybe a child's ability in math really starts to show up. And then you want to build on those strengths. And it's really important not to hold the kid back. Last night I was uh, doing a talk, and I had a mother come up to me, and her son was in eighth grade, and he was just brilliant in every subject. They wanted him to stay in the regular school for social, and I agree with that. But don't make him do the baby math book. If he can do the calculus book... um, you know, from graduate-level math book when he's in high school, and let him have that graduate-level math book and, or let him take an online class on a, on a computer, and then he can still be in the regular school for other activities like, you know, school play or band, which I think are important for social. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, don't make him do baby math. I mean, you make him do baby math, he's going to have a behavior problem. But a lot of kids that are super good in math tend to have trouble with reading. That tends to be the pattern. Well, and then when you think about the autistic brain as as being um, something that's highly individualized, I mean, I think up to this point we've kind of looked at autism as as this this larger, well, blanket, if you will, diagnosis. And the more that we look at each, and even though everyone says if you've seen one person with autism, you've seen one person with autism, we understand that, but in terms of how we approach them, the therapies must be individualized, because the autism is also well, well, very specific. You look at the things where, they're, where it's more the same, you get on the higher end of the spectrum, the lack of social relatedness, the social circuits aren't hooked up right, you know, that's pretty, that goes across, you know, the different kinds of brain types, but where you really get the differences are the sensory problems. Some kids have visual sensitivity problems. Other kids have touch sensitivity problems. Others with sound sensitivity. And the areas of strength. Seems to be kind of a common denominator to have uneven skills. And there's three mm-hmm. basic patterns. There's the photorealistic visual thinker like me that has trouble in things like algebra. 
Then there's the more pattern thinker. Think visual, spatial, where you are in space thinker, the mathematician mind, engineering and computer programming, maybe may have trouble with reading. And then you got a word thinker, and he knows every fact about his favorite subject. <laughs> okay. Well, Temple, um, when you just mentioned sensory, let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, we agree with you, and we know Dr. Uh, Lorna Wing and her uh, research partner, Judith Gould, they have just done some recent research on girls as well as sensory. They agree, too. This is an issue underlooked in autism. Well, the thing is, sensory problems, and in fact, we got, I've got, we have an entire chapter in the autistic brain on sensory, and sensory problems are not confined just to autism. You can have them with dyslexia, ADHD, you know, uh, AD, uh, lots and lots of different uh, diagnostic categories, but they're very variable. And they vary from being a nuisance to making it impossible to tolerate normal environments, like a noisy sports bar with a whole bunch of TVs going. And the thing is, one kid may have a problem with fluorescent lights. And you can see the flicker of fluorescent lights, and it drives him crazy. Another kid might be sound sensitivity. Another one, it might be touch sensitivity. And in order to study these sensory issues, you're going to have to separate them out by a visual problem, a hearing problem, a touch sensitivity problem, because if you mix up all the apples and oranges together, you're not going to get anywhere studying them. And the thing that really bothers me is that is a lack of studying in this area, because how can you learn to be social if you can't tolerate noisy environments where a lot of social activities are done, like noisy restaurants? Right. Absolutely. And what do you think, Temple, um, uh, as far as the research that's looking at sensory? Do you oh, think, I think we, we need to do a lot more research on that? It would be one of my top priorities for research, and we need to find treatments for these sensory problems. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And with sensory being so tied so heavily to behavior as well, is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. I oh, mean, yeah. you have a child and you take him to the big supermarket and he's throwing a great big fit. That's probably due to sensory overload. And I've right. had some parents tell me, especially with some of their nonverbal uh, child, that um, uh, you take them to the noisy supermarket, and it might take them two days to get over that trip to the supermarket. Right. And um, I know that's true, too, before I really understood autism with my youngest son, Sam, who ended up having an Asperger diagnosis, a lot of his meltdowns were explained and made so much more sense to us once we understood noise sensitivity. Uh, he had a lot of problems actually with smells. Smells would just, he would end up not speaking. He would just kind of go in a corner and bang his head against the wall. And a lot of times it was the smells that were bothering him. Yes. And people just didn't understand that how tied to the sensory issues his behavior was. Well, that's right. No, a lot of bad behavior is tied to sensory issues. Right. Well, um, the other part of your book here, Temple, if we if we can jump over there for a second, is the part um, that starts out with a few chapters that focus on what we feel are current and very important topics. And Chapter Six, called "Looking Past the Labels," we love that. Please share for our listeners your thoughts on the labels in the DSM, especially let's talk a little bit about the new changes that are about to be released this month with this brand-new DSM-5. Well, I'm concerned about taking out the Asperger's and changing that to social communication disorder 
because it's still the same thing. You know, right. social communication problems are probably the core deficit in autism, and to say that social communication is not, not um, autism doesn't really make very much sense to me. There's right. a lot of controversy as to how many people that would knock off the spectrum. I think one of the reasons that was done was to narrow the diagnosis because, uh, you know, there's problems with funding. <laughs> right. Well, and I know we've had that discussion um, at the National Gifted Conference. We talked about it when they were first mentioning trying to branch off and come up with social communication disorder. And, you know, you said it, and everybody I have seen has said that's the heart and soul of what autism is. Well, that's it, it right. In, in an inability to relate in a common way, and when you take that away, um, you know, you, you can't separate that from autism. It just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. And when we, we look past these labels, which it seems to me, and we've all talked about this, and I know Becky and I are very excited, and I mentioned to you, Temple, we're having um, some guests on this month that have written some books about the DSM. And uh, and who who are those guests? Uh, Gary Greenberg. He wrote an article called The Book of Woe, and now he's turned it into a full-fledged manuscript, a book. And The Book of Woe is about describing how the DSM is basically inherently flawed. Yeah, in fact, if that book is out, I bought it yesterday. Oh, you did. Wonderful. And then and, Dr. Ellen Francis is also going to be on. Um, well, actually, he was on last week with Saving right. Normal. Right. And uh, so both of them just um, are, are looking at the preponderance of how, how desperately endangering this, this new DSM in these categories can be. I know when we think about social communication disorder um, and splitting it off in terms of our high-functioning um, kids with Asperger's Syndrome Temple, their behaviors are going to go misdiagnosed as behavioral disorders. And that well, the thing is, if they, they actually diagnosed it as social communication disorder, you'd use the same treatment you'd use for Asperger's. You know, what would be bad would be diagnosed as something else. Right. Right. Well, I just I just see a fear of them getting trapped with behavioral diagnoses as well because they're not understood or because they're misunderstood because they're not being seen as, as um, being on the autism spectrum any longer. Um, and yeah, the problem is people just, you know, one thing we talk about uh, in the Autistic Brain book is what uh, we call label love. Uh, I'm kind of appalled at the amount of parents that will come up to me, well, is my kid autistic or PDD NOS? And, you know, I said, you know what, it doesn't really matter. Tell me about your kid. How verbal is he? Does he does he work at grade level or does he work at grade level in some subjects? You know, I want to listen know more about him so I can make suggestions on how to work with things. Talk to him about specific sensory problems. You know, let's mm-hmm. try to deal with the specific problems. But I really want to emphasize developing strengths. You know, my ability in art was always encouraged. And I was encouraged to do lots of different things. You know, not just do endless horse heads. I'm also concerned about the uh, video game addictions where these kids are getting so addicted to video games, they're not doing anything else. There's a few of them that learn how to program them and can go into the industry, and that's fine. If they do that, I'm all for that. But play video games for 10 hours a day, sitting at home at the couch, uh, that that's not okay. And uh, I'm also a big believer in getting these kids, especially on the high end of the spectrum, learning work skills. When I was 13 years old, 
My mother got me a little sewing job. She arranged it. And when I was 15, I was cleaning horse stalls. And then I was doing uh, carpentry work, and I redid our Skeeto house, and I was out on my aunt's ranch building things. And when I was in college, my mother helped set up some internships. In one of them, I worked in a research lab and had to rent my own house with another person. Um, these are things that um, you know parents and teachers need to work on setting this stuff up because there's a discipline of work. You know, kids used to learn that with paper routes, but we don't have paper routes anymore. But I think a 13-year-old kid ought to be walking a couple of dogs for the next-door neighbors. And it's just like a paper route, and he's going to have to walk them every day, and even when it's raining, because that's part of what having a job is all about. You know, Temple, if I can um, go back just a few moments ago when you were talking about the addiction to video games, you know, the whole movement now with almost every kid having a, a cell phone or an ability to get online, social media can become an addiction, too, that, you know, in some ways it's good. It's a good way to relate to other people socially, but in other ways these kids are obsessed. It isolates them, and they don't have real people-to-people contact. Well, you don't take the video games totally away. I think it's okay if a kid comes home from school and he wants to de-stress, so he does an hour of video games or whatever, but they, they, then you've got to get the stuff stopped, and you've got to do, you know, other activities. They um, just can't play video games all day, and i uh, you know, doing things on social media, uh, sometimes it's bad bullying. You know, at least when I was in high school, uh, when I did the specialized interests like riding horses and, and the electronics lab, the students that were interested in those specialized things were not the kids that were doing all the teasing. Well, now I'm imagining if cell phones had been around when I was riding my horse, oh, well, somebody would have been texting me and, and telling me all these horrible, you know, teasing mm. names like tape recorder and phones. Right. Yeah, and and I will. I'm here to testify. The power of cyberbullying is just incredible. Um, and and the targets are are much more widespread and varied because what we have now is a culture where kids really they don't share a whole lot. Um, you know, when we were kids, I know we spent dating us, but we shared. We shared the same neighborhoods, we shared the same neighbors, we shared the same schools, we shared the same hobbies with specialized groups of people, and we shared just even the same three television or four television stations. Now kids are so widespread and varied that they'll that social media just opens a door for anyone who's different being Pegged is different and teased for it, and it, and it can be very, very and then, But also, if it's used right, it can open the door for kids to get yes. involved with shared interests. Exactly. Right. You, know, you can use it. You you could have a social media thing for, you know, uh, music or for, uh, you know, uh, robotics well, or, uh, activities and things like this. I think right. parents have got to um, step up to the plate and... Uh, yes. And if, if if little Timmy is writing bad text messages or writing nasty stuff on Facebook to little Tommy, and then the two moms need to get together and little and, and you make the kids stop it. Well, you know, the it, 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 if that if those kind of things had been around in the fifties, and uh, one kid was like writing all kinds of bad stuff on Facebook, the two moms would have got together. They would have just stopped it. Right. Right. And and unfortunately, we live in an age where so many parents feel so overwhelmed by all the demands that they allow 
they 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 aren't able to monitor as much. Well, because as, it, as you the have kids parents working it. two jobs and they're stressed right. out. Right. And but these kids do need so much more supervision than so many of them get. And another thing, going back to what you were talking about, the paper routes and the sewing, Temple. Um, our children need, regardless of ability, some form of work ethic instilled in them. Well, I'm and a video, big believer in putting the, hands, the hands-on classes back in the schools. They teach practical problem-solving. They teach resourcefulness. And fortunately, I just found out that Texas and Arkansas were starting to put these things back in. I just found that out just you know a couple you know a couple of oh, months good. ago. Now realizing that taking out you know sewing and cooking and woodworking and welding and all of those kind of classes, auto shop, that was a big, huge mistake. Right. And the school I teach in actually is a magnet program for automotive technology and industrial arts. And so we get a lot of the the spatial thinkers who are not strong in math and who are not strong in reading, but they are just wonderful with um, auto, with engines and with auto body and designing pieces for your tool and die. I mean, we have these kids who are just incredible, but when it comes to standardized testing, they're not they they don't look successful on paper, but they're going to be quite successful in life. Well, there's a brand new book out by E.O. Wilson, you know, the famous biologist. I think it's called something like Letters to a Young Scientist. I'm not sure about the title. Mm-hmm. And he was very bad in math and he was saying, "Well, you know, there's a lot of things in science you can do and be bad in math." And then of course, the bloggers got all over him about that. But the thing I get concerned about is the people like me getting screened out because of all the emphasis on STEM stuff. You know, what they're doing with STEM elementary school, I would be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful in those things. But uh, you need my kind of mind on the science team because I'm the one that when I read the method section of the paper, I visualize how that experiment's going to be done. Mm-hmm. And and I go, wait a minute, you got different results in these these experiments because you used a different population of people or different breed of animal in your study. Right. So you can predict outcome before it ever goes too far if you want. Or you can just look well, at it. What I can what I do is you see there's a lot of studies, you know, that come up with different results and some will say, Well the other studies rubbish or something like that. But right. then when you look at the method section and I visualize how they did the experiments. When studies come out with totally different results, it's usually because there's something different about the methods. And when I review journal articles, I'm like the methods police. Other people can be <laughs> the statistics police, but somebody needs to be the methods police. And that's going to be me. You see, when you need right. to have both. Right. And it's and unfortunately, like you said, with the emphasis on STEM and the emphasis now with the common core where everyone has to reach a proficiency level and it's all about intervention and helping them with their areas of weakness, they're getting pulled out of important areas to focus on what the scores have to be. Well, I've heard really awful things where, okay, the kid's having trouble with math, so they're going to take them out of art or they're going to take them out of band. And I'm going, no, that's the worst possible thing you could do. Right. Right. It takes away their motivation and the place where they can feel some confidence. If I hadn't had art when I was in elementary school, I would have just gone nowhere. That was absolutely my favorite class. And can you tell us, Temple, why was it your favorite class? Well, I was good at art. That's Uh one of the reasons it was my favorite class. And so I enjoyed doing it. And, and, uh, And 
you know, a lot of autistic kids will just draw the same anime character over and over again. Yeah. Well, you got to try to discourage that. You got to say, well, let's do anime's mm-hmm. car. Let's do his house. Work on broadening <laughs> it out. I wish you could come see my board at school. People walk in and they look, and I teach high school simple, and I have sophomores and juniors, and, but I have students who they start with anime, and it, it's funny because there's this one young lady in particular whose art is exceptional, and she's Asperger's, and I got her first, she drew her character, then she started styling her hair and her makeup like Good. a character, and then I started having her draw the environment, and now she has a whole concept or a whole anime I don't know what you would call it. But, but what you're doing, what you're doing going. there is you're broadening the fixation. See, some people want to, you know, stamp out the fixation. No, what you do is you tap into the motivation of the fixation and you broaden it. You see, you've gone right. a single anime character, then you're going to style her hair different. Then maybe make her clothes different, and then you're going to draw. Well, where does this anime character work? You know, you broaden it out. Right, and we can only do that when we see each child individually. And then you can target their strengths, and you can you can work with the weaknesses, but we can't just focus on them. And and oh my goodness, that's what a lot of education. Well, there's no way you're going to make me an algebra specialist. And a mistake that I'm seeing <laughs> with the kids that can't do algebra is they're not allowed to go on the geometry. And I never got to try geometry because they kept pounding away on algebra, and that was a mistake. No. That, that makes sense because they really, many kids are not, um, they they can't flow from one to the next. I think that's, that's right. common. Well, well, now it's Algebra 1 and then it's Geometry stuck in the middle and then it's Algebra 2. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, if they had sequenced it that way when I was young, I'd go crazy. Because I, it's just like, give me all the algebra, let me finish that, and then give me the geometry because I can't blend everything together. Yeah, but I'm saying, um, you know, I still can't do algebra. It doesn't make any sense to me. I had somebody right. come up to me at a meeting and say they could teach it to me visually. I said, well, that'd be great. You know, I. Yeah. But it, it sort of, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. And then I had a wow. shop teacher said, tell me one time that, well, you use algebra to figure out fluid flow in hydraulic systems when you're designing equipment. Mm-hmm. Well, the way I figured that out is I had these books full of tables, but. But making it into something real, like figuring out, you know, fluid flow and hydraulics, yeah, I can be interested in that. I could learn that because, you see, that's that's using algebra on something real. Right. You know, and I think you're right, Temple. It's the theory of it. My, my yeah. son, Sam, who struggled with math, I mean, that was his area that just really held him back and almost took him under because he felt like, I can't be smart, I can't do math. And when we got to algebra, well, he thought it was just ridiculous. And I I always tell this because it's not a joke. He really said it, but it's quite funny. He said, who was the inventor who invented a system where they mix up the numbers in the letter system? That's just ridiculous. (laughs) It didn't make any sense to him. Why would we want to mix numbers and letters together? So he was looking at it in a very concrete way, and the theory of it made absolutely no sense. Well, I think for a lot of kids that are kind of quirky and different, you know, there's a lot of kids where a two-year um, community college might make more sense. You know, in the mm-hmm. last year or so, I went to two really great fancy chef programs where they were really learning how to do fancy chef stuff. And mm-hmm. in one of those programs, half the people there and the teacher, I think, were on the Asperger spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and things like auto shop and, 
And then I heard something really crazy the other day that they were going to make the kids that were going to take auto shop take calculus. Well, I think that's just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely ridiculous because these kids, just because they they can't thrive in one area doesn't mean that they're not going to be successful in life. I mean, I think of how many of my kids can rotate an object in their mind. I mean, not many of them, but that's a special kind of thing. I just read an article in Business Week yesterday about a real estate um, person that started out making extended stay motels, made a ton of money. This guy absolutely can't do algebra, but he has now orbited a habitat module in space and uh, it's going to uh, he's got making big dreams, and he's probably pretty quirky because part of his corporate logo is space aliens. You know, people <laughs> think that's a bit weird, but you know, we need those kind of you know visionary kinds of minds. We uh-huh. also need the different minds to work together because I'm going to show you he's hiring plenty of engineers. You know, like I do the visual thinking part. I'm an industrial designer. Industrial designers need to work with engineers. Let's look at a product like the iPad. Steve Jobs came up with the user interface. That's the art part of it. And then the engineers have to make the iPod insides work. You see, that's right. the two kinds of lines working together. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, and Temple, um, you know, this really goes to say with all of this new push about the DSM, and when I say push, I mean the criticism, and I think it's really in a really making a tipping point. We all agree. Uh, I, I think that's what Dr. Francis said. The time has come where this new DSM is going to go forward, but we've got to look at alternative ways of helping people. And, you know, in your book I noticed in the beginning where it said, Symptom by symptom is what we need to look at. Well, that symptom by symptom, you know, and we go into this in detail in the autistic brain, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, well, let's take the social communication. There's been functional MRI Im- imaging that's been available for 15 years that can diagnose the, some of the social problems. And it's been around for a long time. And then this new diffusion tensor imaging could diagnose specific language problems. I had problems with speech output. I couldn't get it out. Another kid, Zachalalik. They have perfectly good speech output. They yak out TV commercials, but they don't know what they mean. Right. And and when we put that together, Temple, with more and more advocates, advocates and advocacy looking at got to look at the strengths. I mean, to us, it just makes common sense. You know, when you look at the strengths of someone, it's just going to make more sense to focus on what's right than we've spent so much time focusing on what's wrong. We also got to think about, um, you know, what are they going to do when they grow up? And the big problem we've got with with autism is, okay, little kids, when they're two and three years old, you pretty much do the same things with them. But then they kind of divide into two groups. You know, you've got a high, you know, higher end group, and then you're going to have individuals that remain nonverbal. Uh, and some of them do have a good brain inside them that they've got like a locked-in syndrome. And in the autistic brain, we profile Tito Macapadahe and Carly, who type independently, and they live in a jumbled-up sensory world. Right. And then you've mm-hmm. got, and they do have to live in a supervised living situation. Uh, and I think it's difficult for teachers to shift gears you know, oh, between yeah. these two groups, and then you get these two groups put together in the same classroom, which I think is really bad, especially for the higher-end kids. And you get into the higher-end kids, I just, I'm going to be just keep uh, 
pushing away on the jobs thing because I'm seeing smart kids graduating from college and they've never learned the discipline of work. And then they get a good job, mm-hmm. even with a good boss, good coworkers, and they just uh, kind of don't like it. They haven't learned how to work. And I think well, that's I, a real problem. I, and, I couldn't agree with you more, Temple. And, you know, we've talked some about my son, and I don't know if I had told you, he um, started out when, when he was at college, he knew he needed a job if he was going to make it on his own, which was really difficult for him socially because he was more than extremely shy. And he ended up in a serving position, which I wouldn't have recommended right away, but it taught him wonderful social skills. Good. He was a waiter at an Outback restaurant, and then um, he he was delivering sandwiches. He was working two jobs to support himself. And it, it just so happens recently, one of the jobs where he delivered sandwiches to a car dealership, they got to talking cars, and they understood and saw exactly how smart he was about cars. They offered him a job. Well, that's and, what's called getting in the back door. That's and right. And in the autistic brain, got a whole chapter in the book on jobs, uh, different kinds of jobs for different kinds of minds, and a lot of tips on getting in the back door. And that's a perfect example of running into the right person that can open the door. Another thing I learned is I had to sell my work rather than myself. So I had portfolios to show people drawings and pictures. Today you can put your portfolio on your phone and have it with you at all times. Right. Right. Well, And he's... He's selling cars now, and at first I thought, I didn't know if that was the best job for him because of his social skills, but because of that experience and waiting on people and learning how to interact and how to pause when it's your turn to talk and That's how to right. not go on too much about your excitement, about your area of interest, That's right. I think it's it's the perfect job, the perfect job, because he's able to talk about what he loves, cars, and I think the fact that his knowledge of cars is very helpful to people because they know he's truthful. They know he understands what he's talking about. He's not just a salesman trying to sell them something that they don't want. Well, I know of several other people on the spectrum that are my age that have, you know, had a decent career in what I'm going to call specialty retail, and mm-hmm. cars would be an, a, 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 is specialty retail. I know right. a guy that I went to school with, and he works at, the, like, Home Depot, and, I mean, that's another example of specialty detail. And people appreciate the fact that he's so knowledgeable of all the different tools and stuff. That's right. And and from my standpoint as a parent, Temple, I, I mean, he's kind of at a crossroads in his education right now. And I have encouraged him to go into design or something to do with designing automobiles. But I think this is a good a good experience for him because he's going to learn the whole thing from the inside out. But to me, it's what you've always said somewhere just get inside your area of interest and so the fact that he's there i said you know you're smelling cars you're touching cars you're talking about cars this is a good thing well the other thing um, this other thing about learning how to work is important because um, i've seen people get through school in very specialized areas like art or computer science Mm -hmm. and then when they got out and got a job they thought they just didn't want to do the work that the employer assigned even though they had a good boss, no harassment, quiet places to work, there's just kind of a discipline of work. And they kind of go, oh, I just didn't really like this job. I just didn't like it. They just didn't like working. Because even the best jobs have got some drudgery. Mm-hmm. And that's something, Temple, that I've noticed as a teacher, that it's very hard to combat that while kids can get motivated in their area of interest, 
You're fading out. I can't hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. As long as they're doing what they want to do and it falls in line with their area of interest and what they want to do with it, the work ethic is there. But when it turns and the drudgery begins or it's something that they don't see as important, then it becomes a real, it can become a behavioral well, issue. Well, I learned that, one thing I learned is that every job, no matter how good it is, there's always some drudgery. I mean, I can think of when I was working on construction and designing stuff all the time in the meat plants. I really enjoyed doing the design stuff. But there were some things that were not fun. You know, um, when things went wrong on, on jobs, sometimes you have a bad boss. That was certainly not a good thing. Um, things where you just got so tired working on some of this stuff. But that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's why the work skills are so important. You're right. That's why I think we need to start around middle school, around 12 years old, 13 years old. You know, we're going to have to set it up in the informal economy, things like dog walking. You know, I want something they do year-round. That's what I like about dog walking. You know, down south it could be cleaning swimming pools because that's almost year-round. But something where they've got to do it every day, rain or shine. Mm-hmm. To understand the importance of the work ethic. Well, and I, I just heard the other day I was in New York got to talking to a guy, and he said that his brother was Asperger's, and um, through a back door he got into working in a movie theater as an usher, kind of shy, so he ended up in the attic where they have all the uh, digital uh, computerized equipment for projection now, and now he's running that all that digital projection stuff for that movie theater. And wow. loving it. Uh-huh. Well, that's another example of uh, getting in the back door through a connection. Right, and it, that's great news. Maybe um, some of these other um, states will follow Texas and Arkansas' lead on getting kids more into the hands-on things they've taken out of school. Well, taking out the hands-on things, I think, is absolutely awful. And and uh, hands-on classes saved me. Mm-hmm. Well, Temple, before we end, we'd like to mention that, um, and we've been talking about this on the Coffee Clatch with Marianne, that uh, Rebecca and myself and you and Dr. Lane Cobbfleisch will be in Orlando this summer at the Sang Gifted Conference. That's right, and I'll be uh, talking about my book, The Autistic Brain, there. That's right, and we're going to be on a panel. Um, Lane has got some new data about twice exceptional numbers, which should be exciting. And Marianne is also going to be there uh, with the, exhibiting with the coffee clutch in person. So we encourage everyone to um, to reach out to some of these conferences, especially like saying where we can learn not just about autism but about giftedness, where we can share this information. Giftedness is such an under misunderstood topic and um, so many people need to understand the strengths that go along with sometimes the challenges of things like autism. Well and unusually on the gifted, a lot of kids there's an area where they they don't have a strength. I mean that's not always the case. Sometimes you have a kid that tests across the whole board but other times you've got the little math genius that has trouble with reading. You've got my kind of mind, the photorealistic visual thinker. Algebra is just impossible and foreign languages were a nightmare. (laughs) <laughs> I'll bet Well Temple we are so excited about your book We're going to be talking about it On this show on Twitter We're um, we're certainly going to Recommend it where we go And um, as always We're just thankful for you And your wisdom and sharing with us Here on our program 
Well, it was really great to be here, and thank you so much for having me on the program. Thank, thank you, Temple. You, you have okay. a wonderful evening. And before we uh, leave, we want to be sure to um, mention our sponsors again. That's youdiscovering.org. That's helping your child who may have been diagnosed with autism. It's an online training course. Discovering behavioral intervention is the answer. And that's you, the letter U, discovering.org. And also Mayor Johnson, your special education super source. Mayor, M-A-Y-E-R dash J-O-H-N-S-O-N dot com. Thank you so much. On behalf of uh, myself, Rebecca, and the Coffee Clatch, we thank you for listening. <laughs>